Enjoy every minute of it. It is a gift. If you are an athlete, whatever it is that you're doing, for most of us, these are extracurricular activities that we have decided to put time and energy into. Enjoy it. Enjoy the moment. Don't be too hard on yourself. If you feel sick, if you you know you want to blow off a day, that's fine. Blow off a day. Just be consistent. But be easier on yourself. Remember why you're doing it. It's got to be fun at some level. Welcome to Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast. I am your host, Dr. Weeder L. Brown. I inspire and promote movement. I explain how running adds to life from a mental wholeness aspect, how obstacles can be overcome to make it to your finish line. Welcome to Running is Cheaper Than Therapy, episode 98. Today, I have a fellow triathlete, a fellow member of Team Zoot, Anna Markeline. She is a psychotherapist and a life coach. She's built a thriving practice over the past 25 years. Her specialties include corporate and individual clients in the areas of anxiety, and depressive disorders. She also specializes in leadership and team building relationship, imposter syndrome, and building confidence. She's helped hundreds of people heal from trauma, break through limiting beliefs, and confidently go after the life they want through evidence-based holistic approach. She breaks through to her clients quickly with a unique ability to connect with their authentic self. Her confidence and power come from success in the world of triathlons, a sport that has been a constant in her adult life. She's a medaled and sponsored athlete who's done hundreds of racing. She uses all of the skills she's learned in life and with her intensive training to make her an exceptional life coach and therapist. She believes that every human being deserves a deeply fulfilling life. She meets her clients where they are and gives them the tools they need to thrive in life. Please welcome Anna to the show. Well, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, I've known you a while from Team Zoot. We've been talking about this for a while. I'm glad we could get it together. Right? It's been like... Many, many months. <laughs> this is something we could get, finally get together to talk. <laughs> it's two busy women. Yes. So let's start with your formative years. Were you an athlete as a child growing up? I was always involved in group sports. I mean, I played, you know, basketball was really big growing up, softball. So those are the two sports. Basketball was really what I was more serious about. But yeah, I ran track, of course. So, you know, always an active kid, but I was one of eight kids. So uh, I still get annoyed with my mom a little bit. I'll give her a hard time, my dad, because uh, the boy, I have four older brothers and they valued the boys in their sports more than us girls. And so that was the thing because they played hockey and football and all the sports. And my father was a coach. And so I spent my life growing up watching my brothers play hockey. I spent my life on baseball fields and football fields and in ho- uh, hockey rinks, freezing my butt off, getting drinking hot chocolate. So sports was everything to my family. And uh, 
So I was athletic and uh, always wanted to do more with it, but just did the team stuff. So what was your favorite out of the, the, the basketball, softball, and track? Well, track was the hardest. So I had a love-hate relationship with that because running very, very hard was very, very hard. And as a little girl, I didn't really like that very much. Basketball was probably what I loved the most because, and I wasn't that good at it, but I loved the team aspect of it. And I loved the other girls in the team and we screwed around a lot. So being an immature, you know, class clown of a kid, I, it was a fun time for me to play basketball with my friends. So that's why I loved it. <laughs> so as, as far as track, what events did you run in track? The 400, which I ended up being very good at, but man, was it hard. Those practices, I remember I would save my money, my change, and I would pray that the high school, we had track practice at night, that they leave the, sometimes the janitors would forget to close the back doors by the gym so I could get in there and get a Mr. Pib. That was my <laughs> after track practice. Yes, yes. Mr. Remember Mr. Pib? Yeah. It was like, I think it was like 50 cents. And I was like, okay, if I just get to this practice and those doors are open, then I can, and I would like take change. If I'm silly, if my mom's person, like I can go get a Mr. Pib. <laughs> hey, rewards work. Rewards work for doing hard stuff. And you know that. I know you know that. <laughs> So after high school, did you continue in sports in college? And No, I actually, I quit basketball my sophomore year because I was on a real, an excellent, with one of the most uh, competitive basketball teams in the area. And I never played and I did something I wasn't proud of. I just quit and I liked the coach, the coach liked me, but I was never going to play. And um, I said, forget it. This is not worth it because I lived so far from my high school and it was, I was getting home. 6.30 at night, had a ton of homework still to do when I was falling asleep and not having fun anymore. So I quit and mid-season, and then I gave up all sports. I just walked away. So second semester, sophomore year, and I didn't do any fitness at all through the rest of high school and through college. I just gave up all fitness and didn't get back into any kind of fitness until my senior year of college when I was, my roommate was a step aerobics instructor on campus. And so I went to her separate robots class and that got me back into just fitness. I was no longer considering myself an athlete in any kind of way through all through college. Okay. So when you got back into fitness, did it spark anything or you just continued doing step aerobics? Did you start doing other things after that? I got a little obsessed with step aerobics with those thong leotards that we all wore. Remember those things in the night? Oh, yeah, I love it too. Until my knees started bothering me. After. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. And my knees started bothering me really bad because I did it too much. And I really just did that. And then I was in graduate school and then working full time in downtown Chicago. And I didn't find the time and didn't make it a priority. So my fitness fell off again when I was working full time and I stopped going to the gym. And that was just for me to maintain probably so that I could eat all the pizza and pasta I wanted to on the weekends. It was just, you know, just be fit so I could eat really. (laughs) And that's what I did through probably my late twenties. When I had my second baby, I had a ton of weight. I was really struggling getting the weight off because I gained so much weight with my pregnancies. And the second baby, I gained 50 pounds again. And I was jealous because my two sisters who still lived in my home town area of Washington, D.C., they were running 5Ks and 10Ks together on the weekends. And okay. I was envious of them running. I was envious of their, their you know, they'd send pictures. This is before Facebook, but they'd send pictures or they would just talk about how fun that race was. And they'd go out for, you know, coffee or breakfast after. And I thought, 
I want to do that. I was jealous. And I, I'm like, I want to do that. So I started when I was probably uh, 28 walking and jogging. And I started a walk jog program for myself at the gym and then out on the roads. And I remember the day that I could run a, a jog a mile without walking. And I was so proud. And that was the beginning of my running career and journey to where I am today. It was, it was because I was jealous of my two sisters. <laughs> so your sisters inspired you. In a way. Yeah. And they know that now too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So after the one mile, how did you progress from then to where you are today? Well, I wanted, so of course I wanted to do a race. So I'm like, huh, they did a 10K. I can do it too. So that's what my goal was, was that once I realized I could run a mile and not stop, then I told myself I could run three miles and not stop. And I just kept at it, kept at it. And then, then I became addicted to running. I was so hard, but you know, once you get into the groove and you can run without stopping and you're like mile two, mile three. And, you know, I did that by telling myself, Anna, just, you know, pick up the pace and run to that next telephone pole. Then you can slow down. Okay. Now just run to that next telephone pole or that driveway. And then I told myself, Oh, what's next? Now I want to run a 5k. Okay. Now I'm going to do a 10k. So that's what I did. And I didn't tell anybody about it. I just kept it inside myself and kept these little inside goals to myself. And, and I did it. That's what I've been doing ever since. So how did you progress to doing triathlons? I was always interested in triathlon and I'd read about a, the sport of triathlon in was it women's, women's, some women's fitness magazine. And I thought, oh, well, I'd like to do that because I can ride a bike. I, mean, I hadn't been on a bike since I was a kid. I could rode my bike all around the neighborhood yeah. <laughs> as a child, you know, but I didn't ride a bike as an adult, but I knew how to ride a bike and I was on the swim team when I was a kid. Oh, so you knew how to swim. Yeah, I did know how to swim. That is actually an important point here because when I got into swimming, I realized I had skills and I was very, very thankful for hating those 6 a.m. swim lessons at the pool when I was a kid. And my mom would dump us off at 6 a.m. and make us, you know, go to swim team practice and then hang out the pool all day. And then we had practice again in the evening during the summer uh, swim season. So that came in handy. So I told myself, I can swim, but I don't have a pool. So I just kind of kept it in the back of my mind. There was no pool near me, but I thought, oh, that was something I would love to do someday. I'd love to challenge myself because I can run and I can run okay. And so it wasn't until years later, actually, when I moved to another part of the city of Chicago and I met a group at this new gym who were into triathlons and there was a, there was a pool in this gym and they, they had a group together and that was it. So it would just kind of fell in my lap and I thought, this is it. I'm taking advantage of it. I'm going to. I'm going to hang with these guys. I'm going to swim with them. And that's what I did. And that's how I got into it. So you uh, got with the group and they were doing triathlons um, and you started doing them. Did you have a coach or anything initially or you just kind of got with the group? I just got the group and I just winged it. Like I, I didn't even know at that time. I don't think I didn't know about triathlete magazine. I didn't know anything about you could, you know, self coach or you could find a program. I just swam. And then I think I was, my biking was spin class. I didn't have a bike. So I was just, I was spinning and I knew, oh, I'm going to have to get a bike at some point. And this group were triathletes who were all about tri bikes. They were about like, like, no, 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 you're not going to do your first race on a mountain bike. You're not doing that. You're not doing that. You got to get a bike. So I was like, oh shoot, like how much money do you have to spend on triathlon bikes? These are expensive, you know? So my husband wasn't really on board because he's like, what? I mean, that's insane. If you're not a triathlete, you know, you, you know, you, you know, these bikes are thousands of dollars, you know? get one for maybe 800 or a thousand used. So that's what I did. I actually ended up getting a triathlon bike for a very a used one for a low price. 
And um, then I, I don't even remember. I signed up for my first race. I think my first race was an Olympic. Okay. Was it Chicago? What, do you remember your first race? I think it was Pleasant Prairie up in Wisconsin, right there at the border. I think it was my first race. And I was hooked. I was hooked. I loved everything about it. How was your first race? Tell me about your first race, your experience. I did okay. But that was, it's so funny. That was back in the day when, you know, I was just happy to finish. I wasn't, I wasn't paying any attention to time. It was so, so much harder to me than running a race, like a run race, right? I know, because I, when I started, I'm like, oh, I can run and I can bike. And I was learning how to swim. We put them together. That was another story. <laughs> it's a totally different story. And you don't know that you don't like blow your wad in the swim. And which I did, like you just blow it in the swim or you just gas yourself out of the bike. You have to slow down. And, and then, you know, a couple of the people, you know, they did like coach me up and were like, listen, you know, you got to get off that bike and you got to run. Remember that. Don't forget that. You know, don't gas yourself in the swim and don't gas yourself in the bike. You got it. But it's hard because your adrenaline is going and you're out there on the bike course, swimming not so much, but in the bike course, you're like, I got more in me. I got more in me. And you kind of, you have short-term memory. You forget what people tell you and then you get off and you have to run and your legs feel like jello. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm going to like fall here. I'm going to wipe out because my legs are- Yeah, are you nutrition? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and most of us don't have the proper nutrition in the beginning. So for me, it was just um, finishing. And I recently saw a picture of myself in my first race and I'm like, what a different person I was. I kind of miss it though, because I had no idea what I was doing. And I was like, I thought I was so cool running through the finish line. I was like jogging. I turned my baseball hat on backwards. I was like, yeah, I'm a badass. Like I thought I was like, I thought I was hot, you know what I mean? Like hot shit. So excuse my language. But I was like, later, the years later, the 20 years later, I would never, like you'd see me, I'd be like ugly, like I had that ugly running look because I'm dying. I've like totally blown my gasket and I've got nothing left going to the finish line. But that first race, I'm like, this is great. I love this. Jogging into the finish line. <laughs> do you have a favorite race? A triathlon? I do like Pleasant Prairie a lot. That's the Olympic distance that I always done. I love Ohio, half Ironman. I love that race. I qualified for world championships at Ohio. So okay. I have that positive association uh, to Ohio. But even if I hadn't qualified there, I just really love that course. It's not too hilly. It's pretty flat. It's good for me. Us Illinois people, it's hard for me to go out to hillier races where we don't train that way all the time. We've got the wind, but we don't have the hills here. So. No, no, even the, the suburbs a little, but not as much as other places. Nothing like you, the, the Western states, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what's your worst race? Do you have one you think um, Yeah, that was just horrible? <laughs> so my husband and I have talked about this many times. So he became a triathlon coach. He got into it and then he became a triathlon coach. So I had him coach me. This is 2013. I'm like, oh, great. I'm not going to pay for a coach. You're going to coach me. Well, that was a bad combination. <laughs> that's, that's, really? that does not mix. Oh, no. He's, you know, we're parenting together. We own a home together. And now he's going to coach me. And he, <laughs> by the time we were finished, I said, you're fired. He goes, good. You're fired. You're the worst client. <laughs> so you did use him for one race. race. I did use him for a season. And I didn't, I was not doing very well. So my, I did a half distance, or I guess you call it half Ironman, half distance up in High Cliff, High Cliff, half Ironman. I think they have a sprint and they have a, I don't know, an Olympic and a, and a half. So I did the half 
and he wrote out all my times and what my, he wrote out what I should be, how I should swim, the time I should swim, of course, and after all this training, really hard training, and then what my bike pace should be, and then what my run pace should be per mile. And I remember looking at it the morning up going, this is crazy. You're giving this to me right now, and I don't know how I'm going to be able to run these paces. Like, it's just, Mm -hmm. that's not really realistic. I can do it training, but I don't think I'm going to be able to do it every mile. And I didn't, but I had that in my mind. So in your mind, you have it that this is the pace I should be hitting. And every, every mile you looked at your watch and you see, you're so like, let's say you're supposed to be running an eight fifteen, but you're running a nine thirty, And like it, my stress is going up because I'm so far off the mark of what kind of, yeah. my coach wanted me to do. Right. And you're getting upset and disappointed and I, I can't go any faster. Do I have a fifth gear? Can I, can I, do I have anything more? And I just, I couldn't do it. So, and I was trying to place in my age group. I was trying to get on the podium. I think I was like, fourth or fifth. And the women who first, second, third were like 15 minutes ahead of me in, in, in their finishing time. And that was the worst race. And I'll never forget, I was exhausted and I was so mad at him. So I was physically exhausted, but also angry at him. He comes up to me at, at the finish and we go over, there's this hill that overlooks this big lake that this race is on. And all the family members and friends and everybody's gathering on the hill with their dogs and their babies and everyone's eating pizza and getting all the food. And I sat on that hill with him and I ugly cried, wailed like a baby. Oh, I'm so upset that I did so poorly in that race. And I was mad at him and I cried and cried. He just sat next to me like, okay, okay, okay. And I'm like, okay, okay. He was being supportive, but like, I didn't care. Everybody was staring at me. Like, what is wrong with that woman? I'm like, I was so upset. So I, that was the end of that. I'm like, I think that we need to part ways. Like, yeah, we need to part ways. So that was my worst race. Does he still coach? He does. Yeah, he does coach, but it just wasn't a fit for us, you know, because he said to me, okay. he's not wrong. He said, you know, you were a pain because you questioned everything I said to you. And it just wasn't a fit. You know, not everybody. So we had to part ways. It was a, you know, being, we're great being husband and wife. I love very much, but not a good coaching uh, team. <laughs> so well, that's, that's, that's reasonable. That's reasonable. And I can see that with other sports, like skiing for, I see a whole bunch of couples. They'd be on like a, a black run and the person's like in a wedge and someone, like, you need to do this. You need to do that. I'm like, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And he'd run with me. He'd be like, oh, you got to pick your pace up. And I'm like, I don't have anything else in me. Stop telling me to pick my pace up. You know what I mean? And it was bad. And then there were days where, you know, maybe something was going on with one of the kids and I probably needed to just go out and ride by myself, but we would ride together because he was also training too. And I'd be like, why are we doing this right now? I mean, I would never, and I ended up having a coach for seven years after that who got me to where I ended up getting to with my athletic triathlon goals. And she's my, I would never speak to her that way. She's she's not my partner, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I just do what she tells me to do. <laughs> so what do you find the most challenging aspects of triathlons for you? For me, the most difficult aspects of triathlon was actually not, was not, swimming, biking, running, but incorporating it into my life. Because my husband and I have five kids together. We both work full time. And I had triathlon goals that I had set for myself. And it you have to become an expert at planning at your schedule and your routine and taking care of your nutrition and your sleep. That was 
a very, very challenging part. I mean, I did it for many years and now I've stepped away because I just stepped away from triathlon for a little bit. My, um, my body's exhausted. And yeah, and I look back now and I think, wow, it's, it's amazing that I did do all of that. And I think I did it pretty well, but it takes determination of wanting really kind of big audacious goals and committing to the discipline that goes into it. Like anything, like in graduate medical school, like it is a discipline and you have got to practice that discipline or it will all fall off. So I found that putting it into my life was a challenge on the daily. That's reasonable because it's like another part-time job at least. Absolutely it is. And that's why I never did an Ironman because I truly just didn't know where I'd find the time to do it. For me, it was the time and with kids and you know the kids were supportive but i'm not gonna lie i mean being really very transparent the kids got tired of it because mom and dad are always training always like we'd sometimes we'd have to eat late because we got home late from work and then we'd have to do a bike session we swam that morning at 6 a.m and now you had to do a 45 60 minute bike ride and then dinner was coming late and the kids got tired of it and so that took its toll i think on all of us in a way that makes sense you said you stepped away a little bit from triathlons. Do you have a bucket list or plan to return as far as triathlons or during sports or just running? I'm not sure. I'm in this phase now of just sort of being with what's coming up for me. I don't want to say that I've done with triathlon. I told myself that if I felt envious or, you know, felt uh, some sort of itch inside of me when I saw on the Facebook triathlon groups that we're in. And, you know, not that I was just happy for my friends and fellow triathletes, but that I wanted to be there too. I would pay attention to that. You know, if I felt that itch, like, oh, I want to be there, then that's, you know, my intuition or my, me telling myself, maybe you're not finished. Maybe you're not done. So last summer was my first summer off because I, my last half was in uh, October of 21. So I didn't feel the way last summer because it was my first summer in over 20 years of really not having to do a three hour bike on the weekends. Like my Saturdays were for me. And I love that. I love that I could get up a little later and just go for a run and not be, take my watch off. Like I, I needed that. I really, really needed that. No heart rate monitor, um, not having to <laughs> swim, you know, get into my, get a pool lane at 7am before work. I just, I really enjoyed that. So I'm still reveling in that a little bit. My husband says, you're not done. You're going back. We'll see. I, I'm, I'm looking at endurance racing too. I'm I'm very interested in doing some ultras, maybe doing some long course obstacle course racing or some ultra ultra marathons. So we'll see. We'll see. You know, I'm open to anything, but I I want to wait. I I need a little bit more of a break still. I understand. I feel this. Well, my body is making me take a break because I've been injured. I can't even run, and I'm like, well, maybe I should enjoy it because I was just like down and depressed and I'm like well things happen for a reason let me start doing stuff that I had time to do before (laughs) concentrate on other stuff so right and that's what I've done yeah I mean because I'm in the menopause phase and my body really did not react well to triathlon so I knew uh, Ben Greenfield if anybody knows Ben Greenfield podcast is a big former triathlete a big fitness guru guy, athlete. And I spoke to him and he, he said to me, and I didn't want to hear this about a year and a half ago, I told him my symptoms of just my joint pain and I gained weight. Yeah. Joint pain, weight gain. And, you know, I was in menopause and I knew it and all the other symptoms I was having. And he said, you're not going to want to hear this, Anna, but for someone like you, triathlon and all this endurance training is probably not the best thing for your body. And I did not want to hear that. 
and I just let it sit. I just swallowed it. And so in taking this break, what I've really gotten into, which we know to be the most important thing for women in perimenopause and menopause and postmenopause is strength training. So I've really gotten into strength training four to five days a week, and I'm, I'm really enjoying that right now. So we'll see. Okay. So you're not only a triathlete runner, you also are a psychologist. And tell me about what attracted you to the field and a life coach as well. Right, right. Psychotherapy. So I'm a licensed clinical social worker, so I'm not a PhD. I'm an LCSW. I've always been everyone's counselor since I was a little kid. I was like in eighth grade, I was like the class counselor. It's just something I was wired towards. I had one of my best friend's mother was a therapist. And I remember we're in eighth grade. I was in eighth grade. She said to me, you'd make a really good therapist one day. And I think I just, I remembered that, you know, because when an adult that you look up to, who, you know, she was a single mom and she was successful and I, I looked up to her and when she said that to me, I never forgot it. So I enjoy listening to people's problems and helping them figure out how to get beyond where they're at. So whether it be anxiety, depression, my early years, my specialty was eating disorders. So that was all I did when I first started out in my late 20s, early 30s was eating disorder treatment. And then I moved from that into anxiety, depression, what we call the worried well. They're the people like most of us who we don't have a diagnosis of depression or anxiety, yet we are depressed and anxious from time to time or maybe every day. Yeah, like we don't have a diagnosis, but, you know, it's like welcome to the world, all of us. Yeah, especially with the pandemic and everything. I'm sure everybody was somewhat clinically. So I had been doing that for years. And then from there, moved into coaching because I started seeing people who really they were not coming to me. They didn't have a diagnosis, but they're just problems they needed answers to. And they just were dealing with a lot of low self-esteem and imposter syndrome and overwhelm. And that was when I moved into the coaching space. So yeah, I've always enjoyed helping people um, see the light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak, and that you know you can be beyond where you are right now. Okay. Talk about, I guess, as far as psychology and athletes and sports psychology. And I know a lot of particularly women, you know, you talked, you used to treat eating disorders. I know a lot of women, particularly athletes, have issues with eating and depression and when it comes to injury and performance, how all that's related. Well, that was one of the specialties of mine, geez, 20 years ago now, as I would see female college athletes with eating disorders. And I'm not going to lie, it's really, really tough for them because most of, of the athletes that I saw, I would say all, are high achieving individuals. They were high achieving athletes in college, running, you name it, um, cross country, swimming, even dance. And they were also people who took their academia, their academics very seriously as well. I mean, they were just high achievers in in many different realms and, and areas of their lives. And what they needed to work on was rest and recovery And that was something that they really struggled with. So I would come in and I would work with them on how when you slow down and you literally take a day off, you're not going to get slower. And if you did get slower, what would that mean? It was always about what what would that mean if that happened? What would that mean if, you know, you didn't, you know, come in second in that race? What would it mean if you didn't still get a 4.0? What would it mean if... Okay, so you have an injury and you are laid up. I mean, this was injuries could really undo somebody mentally and psychologically, right? Because they had these goals. Yeah, because they don't and they don't have the goals. And some people, that's who they are. They're athletes. If they don't have that, they can't 
It's not, who are they? And yeah, exactly. And so it, it, it becomes a, a bigger conversation around who are you? You know, who, who did your parents tell you that you were? What was the identity formation when you were a child? You were a preteen and a teenager. And who do you say that you are today? So they get to decide who they are. And so that's a question I pose to many of my athletes that they had never thought about before. Because it's like, well, no, this is who I am. Well, is it all that you are? And remember, you unless you're going to be going to the Olympic trials and you're going to be doing this, you know, post college as an Olympian, ninety five percent of these people are not. It's time to start thinking about who you are outside of your sport. And so it would come with resistance and it was a necessary conversation that would allow them over time to sort of take a deep breath, bring their shoulders down and start to explore and get excited about other parts of who they are. So I saw that a lot with eating disorder because what we always say in that field is that it's never about the food. It's never about, you know, what you're eating or what you're putting in. It's never about the calories. It's about what you are attaching, the meaning you're attaching to the way your body looks. What triggers you to to do that? Absolutely. Yeah, the triggers, right, right. So yeah, that that was a lot. And then, you know, for many athletes as well that were not, it wasn't about eating disorders. It was really about, I think for so many of us, it's throwing ourselves grace and allowing ourselves to just slow down and not always be so competitive, but to throw ourselves grace that, you know, we're going to have off days. We're going to have good days. We're going to have days that, you know, I mean, there's days when you're out there and you just feel like blah, like, and you have many days like that, right? Mm -hmm. And how to get out of your own head and how to stop listening to that inner critic that tells us that we suck, we're not good enough. And, and I always tell my athletes, well, I tell everybody this now, pretend you're a racehorse and put those, like, you know, you see some racehorses with blinders around their eyes because those horses tend to look around too much and they get all squirrely and they get nervous and jumpy. So, you know, the trainers will put those blinders on their, on their uh, bridles so they can't see right or left. They have to look more straight. I say that to, to my athletes as well as all my clients, put blinders on, look straight ahead, focus on you. Focus on your process, not the end goal. Once you move out of the end goal and you focus on the process and the consistency of what you're doing, you're going to feel a lot better about yourself as a person. That's true. That's so true. But it's so hard to do. Oh my gosh. You know, they say like yoga is a practice. This is a practice. It's a practice. You must practice it. And there's no perfection here. You're going to have days you're like, oh my gosh, I didn't do any of that. I was comparing myself to her and to her and to him. And, you know, and my inner critic was just, you know, we call it like the inner critic monster was just yelling at me about how much I suck at this and I should have done this. And, but then we have days where it's like, you know what? No, it wasn't so bad today because I told it to go take a hike. And, you know, I actually had a really good run today and I felt good in the pool. It wasn't great, but I felt good. And I got up and I, I I'm done. It's 7am and I'm done On to the next. So it's always a process. Do you see a lot of um, athletes in your practice now with life coaching and in your other practice? I see, it's probably, no, it's only about a quarter. Well, it's about a quarter of my practice. Now I have quite a few people who are, you know, just the everyday, just the, our everyday people, you know. I see a lot of women, but I have, uh, I do see men. I'm trying to think of what my, what it consists of now. It does change. You know, it changed we, uh, with COVID. So. Okay. Yeah, I did. I I don't have as many athletes because of COVID. 
I'm still very involved in the um, professional athletic organizations. But COVID changed things where I'm seeing people who are just overwhelmed and dealing with, yeah, a lot of loneliness and isolation. So Mm -hmm. it has been interesting to watch the landscape of psychotherapy change over the past three years. That's interesting. I would think, even though people still get COVID, the pandemic, I would think it would be less. I know I started back going to therapy doing COVID because it was offered free for healthcare workers and I still do it. I think, I think even if you're in a good space, therapy helps just to have a non-biased person to run things off with nothing else, you know? Well, that's the thing is that many people came in crisis and they have stayed. And so even though we're not, we don't have the masks and we don't have all that anymore, the isolate, you know, but people are not air quote, isolating the way they were because we were forced to, what's happened is people are still isolating. There's still the sense of loneliness. And it's like the the fallout from the, these couple of years of, of mental health issues and being depressed, they haven't just gone away the way I think we thought they would. So that's what I'm seeing right now. Interesting. For your at, um, clients that are athletes, do you can you do you see yourself in them, the competitive athletes? Do you like see yourself like that with me or, or this is me? Absolutely. And if it wasn't for myself being an athlete, being competitive and trying to get on the podium in every race, I don't think I can empathize with them. I wouldn't I don't think be able to give to them in the way that not just my knowledge, the science, the knowledge, but the art of my own experience. I know what it's like to have anxiety before a race because I had it bad, you know, performance anxiety was just through the roof. And I know what it's like to compare. I know what it's like to to have judgment. You know, I know what it's like to also feel like I don't want to do this, but yeah, I do want to do this, but no, I don't want to do this. You know, I've been there. I've lived it too. Right. <laughs> like I said, balancing, you know, marriage and family, but still trying to go after some really great goals, you know, as, as an adult, those are challenges. Do you, um, have other coping mechanisms that you tell your athletes other than like the blinders and to concentrate on today and not comparing themselves with other people? Yeah. Number one, I say, if you are working with a coach, try your best to follow your training program. Now there are days when you will fall off. There are days when, you know, you didn't get up to go to the pool or you didn't do that morning bike because you have a really good reason. The reason is your kids are throwing up all night. Well, that's okay. That's a reason you're, you're sleep, sleep deprived because your kids are sick, but there's reasons and there's excuses. And I think everybody needs to think about what are your reasons and what are your excuses? Most of the reason why we don't, most of why we don't get things done and specifically with triathlon is we give our, we make excuses. So, you know, start with your why, start with why you're doing this. What are your goals for yourself? And just be consistent as best you can. So try not to blow up session after session. You will have days when maybe you got to cut a workout short. That's okay. Maybe you got 15 or 20 minutes on the bike versus a 45-minute bike session because that's better than nothing, right? So it's it's stay consistent. And I talk about that a lot, that don't focus on the goals, focus on the process and focus on staying consistent. That's really, really important. Uh, Another thing that I talk with clients about a lot is once you've done all that and you're getting to race day and you have the jitters and you're nervous, remember you've done all the work. And if you have a clear conscience for the most part that, you know, I've, I've done my best here. I've done all the work. The hay is in the barn. Now you have time to relax, right? You've done the work. Yeah. 
And on the morning of, I do a visualization practice. So my visualization is I go through the race as best I can. You know, if I'm living close to it, I will. I have driven to the race maybe the day before or the week before. You know, you'll do the bike course. You ride, drive your car on the bike yeah. course. You know, you go to where the swim is. If you can swim in that pool or lake, go and swim in that pool or lake ahead of time. So do as much as you can ahead of time, you know, go on the run course or check, at least drive it. So you know where the hills are, where the corners are, all that, right? So mm-hmm. preparation really does help with anxiety. And if you can do that, if you can't do that, then just look at the course maps that are on the website and go over that as best you can. Okay. So know you've done your best, then you have to let it go. And then the next piece is I want you to visualize yourself in that race. I want you to visualize yourself in every single part of that race. So what I'll do is I'll go off after I've got my bike set up and all my gears ready to go. I go off by myself. I'm not somebody who I can't really socialize because of my anxiety. I can't be all rah-rah and socialize for a race because I am I do get nervous and I know to others, it looks like I'm not real friendly. It's not that I'm not friendly. I'm just really anxious. So I'll go off by myself and I just spend time alone, quieting myself down and I will visualize the entire race. And I visualize myself getting in line in my age group, you know, towing up to the, the beachfront or the, wherever it is, the lakefront. I visualize how I'm going to start, where I'm going to position myself. I visualize every aspect of it as best I can where the buoy is. Okay. I'm this, I'm going to turn. I don't think about the negatives. I don't think about, I've already done this preparation at a time. I don't think about someone knocks my goggles off. If someone knocks your goggles off, you just stop and you put them back on. You just calm, stay calm and just keep on going. I will have thought about that beforehand. And then I think about, you know, T1 getting out, taking your wetsuit off. If you're wearing a wetsuit, like I go through all of it and that helps me because it's almost like my mind, my anxious mind is going through it before my physical body is. And it probably keeps you focused on that instead of focusing on all the stuff that can go wrong or your anxiety. Right. And it, and it helps your, well, your, your brain thinks you're doing it. Your brain thinks you're already doing it. So that when you go to really do it, it's like, oh, we've been here before. Oh, we know this. Oh, okay. We're, oh, it's this now. Oh, okay. So there's something to that. There's science to back that up. So as best you can go through that course in your mind ahead of time. So that for me is my visualization. Okay. Do you do mantra? Do you say mantras? I know some people can swim. They'll say things that kind of, I do it to calm myself down. And it's usually like, I'll use like three strokes and I'll say something like, I can swim. That's one thing. Cause I freak out and I'm like, I can swim. I mean, I'm not going to drown. I might not be the fastest. I love that. <laughs> I? Yeah, I love that. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I don't, I don't do mantras because I have, will have done that visualization, gone through the race. It's, if I do, it's positive. I don't have, I actually, have my clients, not triathletes, but I have clients uh, say mantras all the time because it does work. Not everybody likes it, but for many people, they like it and they work. I just tell myself, you are lucky to be here. You are lucky to be here. So I, I, yeah, I come from a place of real gratitude and it really, it calms me down. Like Anna, you're lucky you can do this. Be grateful you can do this. Yeah. Cause everybody can. Yeah. 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 And it does work. It just centers so- me. Do you think there's still a stigma related to mental health and getting help for everyday people and athletes? Or do you think it's getting better? I think it's gotten a lot better. I think that there is still a stigma, though. I think it was getting better before COVID, but I think COVID, there's so much talk because we saw a hockey stick uptick in the rates of, unfortunately, mental health admissions uh, to ERs and to psychiatric outpatient clinics. 
uh, with anxiety, depression, uh, suicidal ideation. So I think now we've all realized the world over that we've, well, I should, I'll speak for North America and Europe. We've got to start talking about this more and more. I noticed it too anecdotally in my clients telling me that, you know, like I have Anna today, like they're telling their, their kids or they're telling their parent or they're telling their spouse, Oh, wait, I, I, you know, I have Anna this afternoon or what did Anna say? What did you and Anna talk about? Which everybody wants to talk about what they talk about therapy, but the fact that it's such an open conversation in families, I'm hearing that more and more. And I just love it because it's become very normalized that, you know, whether you have a diagnosis or not, the fact that you're in therapy, people are accepting that, Hey, that person has someone that she gets to he or she gets to talk to every week about their life, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that's, you know, and that's a lot. That's what coaching is too. Coaching is different. Coaching doesn't have a stigma so much actually, but it's like, yeah, I'm talking to my life coach. Yeah. I'm talking to my therapist, but the two of them are coming closer together in alignment and they're coming closer together as far as how we're viewing it. So we're starting to view therapy like life coaching that, uh, oh, no big deal. You know, what did you, you're, you're lucky you have a therapist versus 15 years ago. If, you know, we were all trained when we first were licensed that with the ethics of our uh, field that you are never to, like if I saw a client of mine at Target, I cannot for confidentiality reasons, you cannot acknowledge that you know them, right? And I don't know if you have it in your field, but I can't acknowledge that I know them. But if they want to acknowledge me, they can come up and say hi to me. So, but what's changed is that, and that still is that way. But what's changed is that my clients come around, will come running up to me at Target and say, Oh, Anna, hi, Anna. This is, you guys, everybody come up. This is my therapist. You know, like, Oh, Anna, hi. We know all about you. How are you doing? So that's what's so different from 15, 20 years ago is that it's so widely accepted, which I love. More to be done with it, but it's becoming more widely accepted. I think that's good because I think mental, like mental health is just like any other, if you have, like, even a diagnosis or not, but if you need, if you have a broken bone, which is just, that's what I deal with. You're going to go see someone. If you have something going on, you're depressed or anxious or just dealing with life, there's nothing wrong with seeking help. And why, and why is it any different than if you have a broken bone? Like if there's something wrong with, if you're, cause we have some sort of fallacy thinking that we should air quote, should be able to control it. No, we shouldn't be able to, our brains are our minds. That is a complicated organ that we cannot fit. Why do we think we can figure out why our brains think the way they do? You know, I mean. Like people with type A think you can fix anything anyway. I don't know why, but (laughs) you think you can fix everything. You think you can fix yourself. And I'm like, no, you need a little help. (laughs) Right, right. So, and there's so many amazing resources out there. So like if you, if you have torn meniscus, what are you going to do? You're going to go see an orthopedic surgeon, right? If you, you know, I don't know, you have sickle cell anemia, you're going to go see somebody for that. If you have, you know, you're feeling down and blue and depressed, go see someone who specializes in that. They can help you to feel better. You know, go, there's resources out. There's people who are trained in doing that. So yeah, I just think of it as, you know, get your team around you, you know, like when you're a sport, like when I was a sports team and I was younger, I've been been through difficult times in my life and I got a team around me. I got psychiatry. I got my therapist. Yes. I had family and friends, but I got a treatment team. I was just on a podcast right before this talking about postpartum depression because of that case in Boston postpartum psychosis. And, you know, one of the people on the podcast said, you know, I, I'm afraid to have kids because of my own history. And I don't know if that's something I'm just afraid. And I said, 
it's different. And we were talking about the history of postpartum psychosis. And I said to her, it's very different today than what it was 30 years ago. Today, if you want to have a baby, you can plan all of this in your pregnancy period and you can plan for, you know, how you might feel. And then you can get your partner, your partners involved, but hopefully you can get, you get that psychiatry, get that therapist, you know, you know, get that team around you, get, get a support group going. There's all kinds of free support groups out there. Like there are resources for all of us, you know, think about it for like a triathlete and you're doing the do every single day, but you always deal with anxiety. You're always anxious. You're always worried. You don't always have to feel that way. There is help for that. Mm -hmm. I think we sometimes just don't realize it. That's true. I think it's, 10 people think it's normal because everyone else is somewhat anxious yes. about everything, yeah. especially close to a race. This could happen. That could happen. I'm just calm down. <laughs> totally. totally. <laughs> and, a, and a sports performance therapist can really help you with that. You know, I mean, I needed someone to talk me off a ledge, no, no pun intended, but like I needed someone to help bring down my level of anxiety. And I did, it's, it was a game changer, game changer for me. So yeah, there are resources out there for, for all of us to, to perform and feel better. It's good that people know that there are resources out there. You don't have to be a millionaire um, to afford therapy or different things that you can do depending on your economic situation. Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah. So part of my podcast is to feature guests who've overcome obstacles to make it to their finish line. Can you tell me about an obstacle you had to overcome, whether it be in life or related to endurance sports or your profession that you have had to overcome? The biggest obstacle in my life that I had to overcome was getting divorced with three small children. And that was something I was raised in a religious home. And that was something that was just, you did not do. And I was the first, so I was, I'm one of eight kids. And on the outset, I looked like I was very happily married and there were a lot of struggles going on that no one knew about because once again, I think I was too embarrassed to tell people that there were, there were problems And I was the one who wanted out because I couldn't do it anymore. And so that was a huge obstacle to move through with parents, nobody supporting me and being left alone. I had a few friends who stayed by my side, but uh, people took sides in this, you know, the area I live in, had opinions, had lots of judgments. And so I fell into a very deep depression. And that was the one time in my life when running didn't help me because I was running through all of my stress and anxiety. But that was the one time when the depression was so deep. And here I was with three little kids. I had a private practice and I worked in oncology with cancer patients at the hospital near me. I don't know how I did it. And running was always something I did to, to go and just get away from everything. And that was the one and only time where my legs felt like tree trunks and I could not move them because I was so low. And so I went to therapy. I found an amazing therapist. I saw him twice a week. I got on meds. I saw a psychiatrist that actually knew I would refer to him. And then I became his patient. He put me on antidepressant, put me on anti-anxiety. The anti-anxiety was the worst because it made me feel like I was loopy. And I there's no way I could see my own mm-hmm. patients and see patients in the hospital and be a parent on that stuff. It was a benzodiazepine. I just didn't work for me. But the antidepressant really helped. I saw him. My therapist saved my life and I knew that I could do it even when I was alone and had 
almost no support from my siblings and my parents. And they've all since come around. And that this is, you know, 20 years ago now, but that was a very, very dark, low time in my life. And I'll tell you what it has taught me is compassion and empathy. And I thought I was a compassionate, empathic person, but that experience of feeling so alone, I know now I would, and I would like to say I was a non-judgmental person before, but you know, we're all judgmental to a certain degree. It taught me a lesson and don't ever judge anybody else. You have no idea what people are going through ever, 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 because you have no idea. They may have a smile on their face, but you have, you know, you know, that saying, be kind, always be kind because you, everybody is fighting a battle you know nothing about. That is very true. And I try to employ that way of thinking every day because that was a low, dark time in my life. I've turned around and I'm out on top. I'm remarried with a blended family, five amazing kids, all doing well. And we're all happy. All's good. And family, extended family, it's all wonderful. I love them very much, but it was a really, really rough time. So um, I've come out on top and I think I'm a better therapist and life coach for it and a better person for it. So. Well, I'm glad you made it through yeah. and, and I'm glad that therapy was instrumental in it because therapy, even I'm a f- physician and I had stigma about going to therapy and I was, when I was clinically depressed after my mother passed away, man, actually it was one of my friends. He told me the same thing about the bones. He was like, if someone broke their bone, would they fix it themselves? And I'm like, no, that's silly. He's like, why are you trying to fix yourself? There you go. And after that, I actually decided to see a therapist. If he didn't give me that analogy, I don't know. I probably would have still been trying to fix myself. There you go. And he, he threw me a life preserver. I mean, I, I have that visual in my mind. I think about, I think about what he did. He just was there and threw me the life preserver and told me it's going to be okay. And I'm not here to judge. And that's that unconditional love. Yes. That unconditional love is what I needed. And he, I really do believe he saved me. Yeah. So another question, if a present day Anna could go back and, and talk to your younger self, what advice would you give yourself? Oh, to calm down. Don't be so anxious. <laughs> Don't be so neurotic. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be so controlling. Stop trying to control everything in your life. Oh, I know. I know. <laughs> I know. Life is short. I know. I tell myself, like, I would tell myself, girlfriend, you need to calm down. <laughs> you need to just like chill out. Like, stop being so neurotic. You know, and I like to think I'm not a controlling person, but at the end of the day, yeah, I, I am. I mean, we, we all are. I mean, I run my own business and we are, you know, and I, I work on leaving work with work and, you know, being with my, getting off my phone, getting off social media and really being present with my husband and the kids, whenever, whoever's home, whenever they're home. When I'm with my friends, it's fine. We're all pretty much really good about, we're not on our phones, we're with each other, but really at home with my family, you know, I think that that's um, something I've had to work at, you know, because I, my monkey mind is like watching a show on Netflix and, and on my phone and sitting with my husband. Mm-hmm. But are you really present? Cause you're on your phone, right? Yeah. No. So I've worked on that a lot. I'm getting to the bed. I'm, it's, it's hard to be in the present. It's always you think about the past or the future. Yep. And the present is a gift. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yes. Yeah. It's like, so depression tends to be look back. We say look back in the world of 12 step. We say look back, but don't stare. So, you know, you look back at your life, you don't stare back there. That's where depression uh, hangs out. 
anxiety looks forward. Anxiety is the future. Anxiety is fear and worry. And so, you know, what you just said is so true. Be in the present moment. The present moment is a gift and anxiety and depression are not there hmm. for the most part. I like that. Yeah. Where to look at it. <laughs> So any last minute words of advice for my listeners? Just to enjoy the ride. Enjoy every minute of it. It is a gift. If you are an athlete, whatever it is that you're doing, for most of us, these are extracurricular activities that we have decided to put time and energy into. Enjoy it. Enjoy the moment. Don't be too hard on yourself. If you feel sick, if you you know you want to blow off a day, that's fine. Blow off a day. Just be consistent. But be easier on yourself. Remember why you're doing it. It's got to be fun at some level. Yeah. And get into the people around you. There's so many wonderful people around you. You know, they're just waiting to get to know you at these races. And right. yeah. I would so, never know yeah. you. If if we haven't or. met at that <laughs> zoot dinner thing. Yeah. Exactly. You know, and that's that, that camaraderie, that being with other like-minded people. And there's so many lovely, wonderful people in the sport. You know, that wouldn't have happened if we hadn't all gotten together. So, you know, take advantage of and, and get to know people around you. Say hello. Mm-hmm. So where can people find you? You can email me hello at com. My website is com. I'm the badass underscore confidence underscore coach on Instagram. I'm, I think I'm badass coach on TikTok. That's the latest thing. So and you can find me on the at the Badass Confidence Coach Podcast. So okay. that's on Spotify, iTunes, wherever you find your, your podcast. And that is a mental health and wellness podcast. So I'm all over. Just Google my name and you'll find me. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Thank today. you so much, Wee. Thanks for having me. That wraps up this episode of Running is Cheaper Than Therapy Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. If you already haven't, please download Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast on Apple, Spotify, or however you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you have any questions, concerns, or possible show topics, please email Running is Cheaper Than Therapy, O-L-B, Omaha Love Brown at gmail.com. Again, that is Running is Cheaper Than Therapy, Omaha Love Brown at gmail.com. I also can be reached via Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and my website at www.weouilove.com. Thank you for listening and please tune in again.